morning, everybody. Uh, if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles with me, I would love uh, to have you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, the very first page, chapter, chapter 1. Um, before we get into the teaching, yeah, just a couple other things, exciting things that are going on in the life of the, the church. Uh, one, we have a couple of people who are interested in being baptized. And um, so we're kind of looking at a date for celebrating baptism as a church. Baptism is a, it's a personal decision, right, to, to choose to follow Jesus and be identified as a follower of Jesus. But it's something we do as a spiritual family. It's not just, you know, uh, off on our own somewhere. And so... Um, That's great. It was just sitting here. So. No, my bad. Sorry, Joel. Um, yeah, so we're looking at uh, Sunday, September 17th as a time when before the, the weather gets too cold that maybe we could uh, do baptisms uh, on that Sunday. And so, again, we have, we have a few people who, who are interested in that, potentially. Um, and if you are, like, let's say you're at this place where you're, you're choosing to say, like, yeah, that's, that's the decision I want to make. I want to be sort of known as a follower of Jesus. I would love to include you in that. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have um, probably just, like, one evening where you get together and process, like, okay, what does that mean? What does baptism mean in our lives? Um, and so, yeah, we kind of have a, a short window here before the weather gets too cold. Baptism is very memorable in icy water. It's, right, it's just like come up out of the water and it takes your breath away. And so uh, we don't want to do that. So September 17th is the Sunday we're looking at. So please, if you're interested in being baptized, please reach out to me today. Um, we can talk today, sometime this morning, uh, so that we can, we can get, that, get that rolling. Also, uh, heads up. September 24th, the last Sunday, it's the same uh, Sunday as the, the women's retreat, Dana is going to be sharing her story. Dana has uh, just a really powerful story about the healing presence of God at work in her life, and it's been really cool to watch the story sort of get formed. I know Christina Hampshire has been really uh, helping her with that, as has Susanna, just kind of walking with her to help form the story. So I think it's going to be a great morning. So, so Dana is going to be sharing her story for the teaching on September 24th. So some cool, cool stuff coming up. What is, uh, what's the most important question that anyone has ever asked you or that you have ever asked someone else? So think about that for a second. Like, What's the most important question that anybody has ever asked you or you have ever asked somebody else? Anybody want to offer something? Do you, love me? Do, do you love me? Do you love me? Wow, that's a huge one. Yeah. Yeah, to be able to say, I mean, remember the first time or if you've ever said that to somebody else? Like, do you love me? I mean, that's a risky question. You put your heart out there and you say like, you say those words like, I love you, right? And then the person looks at you and says, thank you, right? It's <laughs> uh, a big question. Any other? Big questions? Yeah. Patricia? Do you know Jesus loves you? Yeah, it's a huge question. Yeah. Do you know Jesus loves you? That's a, it's a big one. I was married in June, 
December, I asked my mother-in-law, why don't you like me? And I'll never ask another person that. She went on for on and on. Yeah, it's a dangerous question. Yeah, yeah, sometimes questions bring more out than, uh, than we're kind of prepared for. Um, someone recently asked me how our kids were doing, and usually you say, oh, they live here, they live there, they have this child, this is our grandchild, uh, their career, you know, financially. This person said something about our kids and then said, how is their walk with Jesus? And truthfully, that was something that no one had ever asked me about our kids, and I thought it was the most important question because they could have asked, certainly, you know, are they making money? Did they get their degree? On and on. But it was, how is their walk with Jesus? Tell me about that. That's beautiful. Uh, somebody else over here? All right. Will you marry me? Yeah. <laughs> We've yes. been married 54 years now. This week. Yeah. This week, your anniversary, 54 years. Let's give them a hand. Yeah. Do you know where you'll spend eternity? Huge question. Yeah. Yeah. These are, these are huge, huge questions. Questions are, are so important, right? Because they can, a, a good question can you can kind of open up something inside of us and make us think differently. The biggest question I ever asked someone was, um, was the same. It was, will you, will you marry me, right? Um, it was Carmen, right, obviously. And now, to be fair, me asking her that question was in response to her asking me, when are you going to ask me to marry you? So when I asked her to marry me, I was so nervous. I got down on both knees. It was like this... I'm, I'm serious. I like, I got the ring, she turned around, and I'm on both knees, like this complete surrender. Um, so that's, that's a good way to start a marriage. So questions. Um, it's interesting, in the word question, embedded in every question is a quest. Right? A, a good question, it, it opens up like this quest. When, when somebody asks you this question, like, how are your kids doing? And, and how is their life with Jesus? It it opens up this, this whole new uh, sort of perspective to say like, wow, okay, I need, to, I need to think about that and process and Maybe I need to have a conversation with them. When somebody asks you like these, these questions that are, that are big, deep, important questions, it, it can set us on this quest. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus was a master teacher, right? He was, he was the greatest teacher who's ever walked the earth. And Jesus asked a lot of questions. If you go through the Gospels and you were just going to highlight and number every time Jesus asked a question, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would get uh, 307 questions. Jesus asked 307 questions. Uh, people asked Jesus 180 questions, so almost twice as many he asked. The teacher is the one who was asking the questions. But even of the, of the, of the 180 questions people asked him, he only gave five direct answers. And most of the time, when people asked him a question, he did what good Jewish rabbis do. He asked them a question in response. Because Jesus knew that, hey, if I ask the right questions, it's going to set people on a quest, a quest to go deeper with him, deeper in their life with God. 
So these are a couple of the questions that Jesus asked throughout his ministry. <coughs> questions like, do you believe that I am able to do this? Why do you call me good? Why are you so afraid? What do you want me to do for you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? Do you want to get well? Who do you say that I am? Do you love me? And my personal favorite, do you have anything to eat? I love that. That's, that's crazy. It's like after the resurrection, Jesus looks at his disciples. You guys got anything to eat? I'm kind of hungry. I love that. So here's our text for the morning. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, he was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now turning around, Jesus saw them following and he asked, he asked this question, what do you want? Well, they said, um, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said, well, come and you will see. So these are, if you, have a, if you have a Bible that has the red letters of Jesus, so the words of Jesus, some, some Bibles are in red, and so it just gives priority to his words. You would notice these are the very first red letters in the Gospel of John. These are the first words spoken out of the mouth of Jesus. The very first thing Jesus says is this question. He asks a question. And I always understood, as I was reading this, I'm like, oh, this is good. Jesus is just making small talk. You know, here the setting is, you got John the Baptist, and he's teaching and preparing his way for the Messiah. That's what he understands himself to be doing. And there are these, these people who have given up their lives to follow John the Baptist, and he has his apprentices, disciples. And, and John has been pointing to Jesus. He's like, this guy, he's going to increase, I'm going to decrease. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, not me. And so John is there, and one day Jesus walks by, and he says to his followers, like, look, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. And so his disciples, John's disciples, begin following Jesus. Jesus is, is making his way, uh, you know, apparently through town or whatever. And he turns around, and he sees these people following him, and he says, what do you want? Now, I always thought that was small talk. It was just like, hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? Right? It's just like Jesus is just making a conversation. It's, what's up? But what if that's not what he's doing at all? In fact, I think there's zero chance of that, that this is small talk. Do you know why? Have you ever read John 1 before these words of Jesus, the first words on the mouth of Jesus? Like, it is the greatest introduction of all time. Like, if you were going to think about the greatest introductions of all time, you know, um, you might think of, you know, the guy, oh, what's it? I'm losing his his name right now, Michael, uh, is it Buffett? Yeah. Buffer, not Jimmy, not Jimmy Buffett, yeah. Rest in peace, Jimmy Buffett. He passed away this last week. Um, Michael Buffer, do you guys know this guy? He's the guy, let's get ready to rumble. Do you know that? That's like the greatest introduction of all time, right? It's like, that's gonna get, he, he does all these fights and stuff and, you know, gets, gets people pumped up. It's like, man, if I was gonna, greatest introduction of all time, that's what I would want. Or maybe the greatest musical introduction of all time. It's Labor Day weekend. Can we have a little fun this morning? The greatest musical introduction of all time. 
right? Maybe, maybe you have songs that come to your mind, like songs that just kind of get you pumped, they get you amped for the song. Now, I, um, some of you might like country music. Um, personally, I, I might offend some people here this morning. I'll take a risk, but I think country music is one of the biggest oxymorons of, um, oh, see, I told you. Do you still love me, right? It's, it's country, but it's not really music. Um, I, I like rock and roll, um, so put another dime in the jukebox. Um, so for me, one of the greatest introductions of all time is this song. Josh is going to play it for you. It's a song called It's a Final Countdown. Like, so arguably one of the greatest musical introductions of all time. I think this is... Oh, somebody's going to sing it. Jeannie, Jeannie's going to sing it. You know, you got it in your head. Oh, we got some. Okay. So this. Do you know this? It's a final countdown. Just kind of gets you, gets you pumped. So like introductions. There you go. You can. So um, these, these introductions, these greatest introductions of all time, they, they kind of get you pumped and they get you set for what's to come. And I would say the greatest introduction of all time isn't, isn't Michael Buffer and it isn't uh, the final countdown. It is John chapter 1. Because like John, as he's writing this, these are the kinds of things he says about Jesus. He says, he was with God in the beginning. Right? Through him, all th you know what? This needs a little bit of something behind it. Hit. Go for it. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. His light, it shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Let's get ready to... Right? That's what you expect right there. This... There you go. Thanks, Josh. This is like the greatest... In, do you hear what John has been saying? It's Labor Day weekend. We've got to have a little fun. Those people who are at the lake, they're missing all this good time. The greatest introduction of all time. Now, do you think John would, would give that build up and then put the first words on the lips of Jesus? Hey, how's it going, guys? Weather's pretty good today, right? No, because everything inside of you as you read John 1 is like, what is this guy going to say? Who is he? Like, he, his words created the world. What is he going to say? And John says, the first thing Jesus says is he asks this question. He says, what do you want? And I'm convinced this isn't a question. This is the question. This is the question. It is, it is maybe the most important question we can wrestle with. What do you want? What do you desire? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? What do you want more than anything else? This is the question. You see, the reality is all of our lives 
are driven by our desires. You are driven by your desires, and so am I. But most of the time, they're like this unseen propeller of a ship that's under the water. And, and we're moved along through life by what we want, by what we're seeking, by what we're desiring. But they're under the surface of the water, and so we're not normally aware of them. Like, we don't pay attention to them. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. Jonathan Edwards was a, a preacher and a theologian in the 1700s. And, and here's what he says. The nature of human beings is to be inactive unless we're influenced by some affection. Now, when he uses the word affection, don't think like romantic affection, think desire, want. Unless we're influenced by some affection, love or hatred, desire, hope, fear, etc. These affections are the spring of, of action, the things that set us moving in our lives, that move us to engage in activities. We look at the world excuse me, when we look at the world, what we see is that people are exceedingly busy. I'm waiting for the amen to that, right? He wrote this in the 1700s. Apparently, people were exceedingly busy even then. We look at the world, and what we see is that people are exceedingly busy, but it is their affections, their desires that keep them busy. If we were to take away their affections, the world would be motionless and dead. There would be no such thing as activity because it is the affection we call greed that moves people to seek worldly profits. It's the affection we call ambition that moves a person to pursue worldly glory. It's the affection we call lust that moves a person to pursue sensual delights. Just as the worldly, excuse me, just as worldly affections are the spring of worldly actions, so religious affections or like Jesus-centered affections are the spring of religious actions. So it's so important that we understand what's driving us, what this unseen propeller is that's, that's moving us into action. Jesus does not make small talk with these disciples. He just gets after it. He's like, hey, hey, you guys who, who are following me, what do you want most in this world? I mean, he just cuts right to the chase. What's driving your life? What are you seeking? What do you want more than anything else? What, what is keeping you exceedingly busy? I'm convinced this is the central question of discipleship. What do you want? And here's the reality. If we don't name our deepest desires, we will just bounce from one unworthy want to the next. Right? Because we, we can want things that aren't worthy of our our deepest desires. And, and I'm, I'm convinced, like most of us, we never take the time to actually examine this. We don't actually go on the quest that Jesus invites us to in this question, what do we want? So we just, we just kind of bounce from one unworthy want to the next. So what are the kinds of things that move us through life? That, and Jonathan Edwards names some of them. There was another theologian um, who's who, you know, earlier than Jonathan Edwards, his name was Thomas Aquinas, and he, he said there were four, and he called them idols. They're like four substitutes for God. And when you think idols, don't think like the little figurine you put on your shelf and burn incense to and all of that. That's, that's not what idols are in, in our day. Idols are good things that are out of place, good things that are put in the center of our lives, and we begin to get worth and value from these things. Good things out of place. And he says there are four things, four substitutes for God, um, uh, slide 12. 
Four substitutes for God that, that most people tend to pursue, and they're, they're money, pleasure, power, and fame. Money, pleasure, power, fame. These are the things that drive most people's lives. And maybe they're driving our lives. What's your idol? Which of these four are you most tempted to? And you can play this little game. Uh, Arthur Brooks, who's a, a professor at Harvard Business School, he, he plays this little game with his students. He's like, okay, these are the four idols, money, pleasure, power, fame. Which do you get rid of? So, so do this little mental exercise. Which is the easiest one for you to be like, I don't need that, and just you kick it away. You, just, you don't have to speak it, but just think about it. Okay, I'm done with this one. This thing doesn't have power over me. Okay, what's the next one? What's the, the next one you're going to get rid of? I don't need that one either. All right, what's the third one? You're like, okay, that's probably, I could do without that. You know what your idol is. Right? The, the thing that's probably driving you, this one that's, that's left. So let's just walk through these. Um, money. Jesus, he, he talks a lot about how money can drive our lives. He, he says this in, in the Gospel of Mark, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 19. He says, like, okay, so be aware. The deceitfulness of wealth and the desires... You hear that word, right? The wants, the desires, the affections for other things come in and they choke out the word. So Jesus says something interesting here. He's like, if you want to know what can choke out your life with Jesus, he says, be aware, like the deceitfulness of wealth. That's a really interesting thing to say, isn't it? That in some ways, money or the abundance of money is deceitful. It makes promises to us that it cannot deliver on. That's what deceit is. It says one thing but, but does another. And in some ways, wealth does this to us. What are the promises that money makes to us? I think the biggest one is security. You want to feel secure? Like, right? You, you need to have this, this money sort of stashed away. And the more money you have, the more secure you will be. That's, that's what money promises us. Um, and again, money is not bad, and we'll talk about that. But, but when money is that central driving force in our life, and I believe the lies it tells me that, wow, if I can just get a little bit more, then I'll be more secure. Um, then it becomes an idol. Uh, money, it tells us that we can, we can have joy. It will give us joy. If I just had a little bit more money, then I could buy those things that I wanted to buy. So it's kind of the byproduct of, of, of money. That was a good pun, the byproduct of money, B-U-I. Um, and I didn't intend that. That, you know, if I can just get this thing, it will bring joy into my life. And we all know, we get these brown packages that show up on our front porch, and you're like, oh, the joy, right, of like this thing that I ordered yesterday, it came to my, and not, and like, yes, I get to open this thing, and then we open it, and we throw the brown box away, and we have the thing, and we just have joy for such a long time, until, right, until we put something else in our car, right, it's just not true, it's deceitful, it's deceitfulness of, of wealth, and the things that wealth can buy, Jesus says, okay, so watch out, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, watch out, I mean, here, these are red words of Jesus. Watch out. Be on your guard. Like, literally take this defensive position against what? Against all kinds of greed. And greed is just the desire for more. It's, I, I need more. I want more. If I just had a little bit more, then I would be happy. Because life, 
the abundant life we're looking for, satisfaction, joy, all that stuff, it does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We know it. Like, we know this. And yet, it still can drive us. Money and the stuff that money can buy, it can drive us. And Jesus is like, be on your guard. Money, it wants your heart. It wants your heart. It's not benign. It's not passive. It like is coming for you. Watch out for it. And it wants to grab your heart. And it wants to take a hold of your heart. And it wants to be the thing that you treasure more than anything else. And it wants to be the central driving force of your life. This is what he says in Matthew 6, 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus speaks very, very candidly about the, the warnings against allowing money to have that central place in, in our lives. Where your treasure is there, your heart, the thing that drives your desires will be also. So what do we do? Like as followers of Jesus, again, money isn't bad. And, and Jesus, you know, he used money. He was supported by people with money. The early church, they, they generously shared their money. And I think there's a key to how we, how we break the spell that money can have over us. And it's by generosity. Like, if you, if you find, like, if this was the idol that you identified that, like, you know, I can do without pleasure and power and fame, none of those things drive me. But if I'm really honest, I, money and stuff and all that, like, that's, it's uncomfortable to name, but that's the thing I'm most tempted to put at the center of my life. The way to break the spell of that is generosity is by saying, okay, freely I've received, freely I give. I'm going to give myself away to bless other people. Um, it is the way, it is the way to, to make sure our hearts are on guard against um, what money wants to do. Generosity, it is a reflection of God's nature. It is a reflection of the way of Jesus. If God has blessed you with the ability to make money, it's not a bad thing to, to run a business or to, uh, to generate wealth. It is not a bad thing. It is a wonderful thing. The world depends on that. Our community depends on that. The church is blessed by it. But don't let it have your heart. Be generous. Give it away. Don't let money have that central place. That's the first idol is, is money. The second is pleasure. Pleasure, it, it's easy to see how the world is, is driven by, by pleasure. There's this interesting verse in, in Philippians 3 where the Apostle Paul's writing to the church and he says this, so just be aware, like many people, they will live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. You could say this, if you look around the world, if you look at the values of, of the world around us, I mean, this is as true today as it was then, like, that there are lots of people who are living opposed to the, the message of the gospel, the cross of Christ, uh, the destiny, the path that they're leading on is just leading to, to to destruction, like these destructive habits and patterns and ultimately like spiritual death, and their God is their stomach. Now that's such an interesting phrase, isn't it? Their God is their stomach. What does that mean? Well, it means they're just driven by the things that they want, like by these temporary pleasures. I think that's one of the things it means. That I, I want it, so I do it. Or I want it, so I have it. That's what our hungers, our appetites are. They're they point us to just like being driven by the pursuit of pleasure. We live in a world that is, is just so saturated, right, with the pursuit of pleasure. We live in a world that is, that is absolutely saturated in this like sexualized 
culture, the pursuit of, of pleasure. And Jonathan Edwards would have, would have named that in, um, even in the 1700s, at least, at least something that's central to the, to the human heart. And, and we see it everywhere we go. Like we have kids, right? And, and you put a, a smartphone, like one of our kids, you know, gave her first smartphone and, and kids on devices. And you just become hyper aware of like the sexualization of like media and social media and all the content, right? Because, because the thing that is driving most everything in the world is this pursuit of pleasure and sexual pleasure becomes like the highest good. And this, it like, for followers of Jesus, we have to be aware of this, to say, like, this is an idol that runs the world, and it can run our hearts, and it can, we can just be driven by our, by our, by, like, our gut, by our stomach, by our hungers, and, um, and it's not what Jesus calls us to. And we have, like, our, our brains are amazing things, like, that, that God created us. He wired us with these, these chemicals that that help us to experience pleasure. The pleasure is not a bad thing. In the right context, pleasure is a wonderful thing. Um, there's a reason God created us with taste buds, right? He wouldn't have had to do that. I think it's a pretty cool thing. Everybody else is like, wow, thank you, God, for taste buds. Like food, it doesn't all have to taste like, you know, cream of wheat or whatever. It, it, sorry if you love cream of wheat. Um, it's a little bit like country. Um, Oh, sorry. I know, sorry, Kathy's going to sit me down and lecture me on Monday. Um, oh, good, Monday's a holiday. But he gave, us, he gave us the ability to experience pleasure in our food. Like, God created our bodies. Like, right? Our bodies are not a, a mystery to God. He created us this way. And so even, like, sexual desire, it is, it is a wonderful thing in the right context, right? The context of a covenant relationship, of marriage between a, a husband and a wife. Like, this is a wonderful thing. And, and so, um, pleasure is not bad, but when pleasure is driving our life, when it is the center of our life, and our whole life is a pursuit of pleasure, it will lead to destruction. It, it, it's so damaging. Um, because what happens is we pursue pleasure, and we get this, like, this little hit of you know, chemicals in our brain, um, you know, the dopamine and oxytocin and this stuff, and it, it, it makes us feel pleasure, but that pleasure, it just fades so quickly, right? You do the thing you want to do, or you, you get the thing you want to get, and then it's just, boom, it's just gone. And so what do you do? Well, you just need to, to go do the next thing, right? You, you need to, to do it. And we end up on this treadmill, I mean, right? And the, and the treadmill of, like, pleasure, it can just go faster and faster and faster and faster until we're running and exhausted and going from thing to thing, seeking pleasure, and, and we're actually not getting anywhere. And some of us, like, maybe this is our life right now. Like, we have just been, we, we think we're pursuing pleasure, but it's actually leading us, it's leading us to, to, to an incredible amount of pain and exhaustion, and our life is unmanageable. And the thing is, we're, we're actually looking for satisfaction, that's what we want. Like, we want something that satisfies us. And, and the reality is that looking for our, our, like, our cravings and our hungers to satisfy us, like, to bring us deep satisfaction is like trying to get full by eating cotton candy. Right? The, the Wayne County Fair is coming up this week. Right? Do you guys like cotton candy? I mean, if you're gonna, I don't either, but it's a good example of this. If you were going to, like, if you had cotton candy, right, you see it. It's like, it's an impressive amount of food. 
right? If this was like a turkey leg, this would be a lot of food, right? I mean, quantity-wise. But it's, it's miraculous because you take a bite of it, and what happens is it just, just, it's just gone, right? It just completely disintegrates in your mouth, and you, all you're left with is a little bit of sugar. Now, how much cotton candy would you have to eat if you wanted to get full? Is it, could you eat enough cotton candy to ever get full? To set, yes, it would. Yeah, absolutely. He, Dennis said it would, it would come back up. But this is what happens is like, oh, it, like we, we have these experiences of, of pleasure that are like, wow, like I want satisfaction and I want hunger. And it's like trying to eat cotton candy to satisfy our hunger. It can never do it. And so the answer to this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11. It says, this is so beautiful. He says, you, Lord, make known to me the path of life, a life of satisfaction, a life of fulfillment. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy. Where is joy found? What does the text say? You fill me with joy. Oh, next slide. There we go. Slide 17 there. You make known to me the path of life, a fulfilling, abundant life. You fill me with joy, and where is the joy found? In God's presence. With eternal, and what does the text say? Pleasures at your right hand. Right? Like, God doesn't want to withhold pleasure from us. He wants to actually give us pleasure that is going to be the most satisfying. Like, the, the best kind of pleasure. And he says this is found in God's presence. It's found following God's will in God's way. There is a deep satisfaction that comes from self-denial. I mean, that is, that is the most upside-down message to the world that says actually it's when we don't make our stomach our God, when our, our cravings are not in charge of our life, when the, the pursuit of pleasure is not running our life, and we actually deny ourselves those things in order to be fulfilled by the things that God wants to give us in his presence, that is where the deepest satisfaction is found. This is, this is the, the message here. So money, pleasure, power. Some of us are driven by power. And you might think, like, I, I don't know that I'm driven by power, but we really like to be in charge. Right? Like, you, you want to be in charge. Um, you want to have say-so. You, you want to kind of tilt things in, in your direction. And, and the evil one tempted Jesus with this, the temptation to power. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 7, it says this, The devil led Jesus up to a high place, and he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms, the governments of the world. And the evil one said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. So what's the enemy tempting Jesus with? He's like, hey, you want power? I'll give you power. I'll put you in charge of all these systems, all these kingdoms of the world. That there is a, a deep temptation to, to power, to say so, to having control over other people. Um, whether it's in our, our vocations or whether it's, you know, politically. I mean, the church... The church has not always resisted this temptation the way Jesus did. If you look back through church history, the church has been at its most powerless in the kingdom of God when it has held the most power over culture. 
right? The, the, the church has not always resisted this temptation the way Jesus said. We've been very seduced by political power by saying, we, if, we, if we hold these powers, then we can control other people. And so Jesus, like he resists this. He doesn't, he doesn't listen to the temptations of the enemy. And here's what Jesus does instead. In John 13, verses three to five, he says this, Jesus knew that the Father, slide, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his, what? His power. Jesus knew in this moment, in this scene, that he had all the power. He didn't have to, like, give in to the enemy. The Father had given him all power. All power in heaven and on earth was under the feet of Jesus. And what does he do with all power? This is what the all-powerful God looks like. This is so, so beautiful. And that, he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You want to know what the all-powerful God looks like? Jesus, when all power is under his feet, he uses that power to serve his disciples, to wash their feet. Even the disciples who were set against him, he washed Judas' feet. This is, this is like mind-blowing that this is what Jesus does with power, that Jesus, when we surrender our life to him and we make him Lord of our life, he gives us power, and it is always the power to serve other people, to serve even those who would consider us their enemies. It is the power to be poured out for the needs of the world, not the power to control, but the power to serve and to seek another's good. So whatever power you have, whether it's a lot or a little, whatever position you have, whatever platform you have, use it to serve other people. This is how power, how we push back against this idol of power. And we use it to serve and to lift others up. Money, pleasure, power, and the last one is fame. And, and, and maybe the word fame doesn't do it for you. I don't really care about being famous. But you really like to be honored. It's like, you know, in, in a group of people, you really like to be honored for your achievements or you want the admiration of others. Like, right? You, you want other people to admire you and to think well of you. Um, I really want strangers to think well of me. So I, I bought a car that I couldn't afford so that those people that I'll never meet again at the stoplight will think I'm pretty cool when I drive by. No? Hmm? I won't make eye contact, right? Like, this is, this is what we do. I bought, I bought a house I couldn't afford because, like, you know, I really, I really wanted people to think, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. I mean, man, this is, this is our world. We want, to be, we want to be honored. We want to be appreciated and thought highly of by others. We want the admiration of others. And, uh, and this, can, this can run our life. We can spend our, our whole lives thinking, like, what will people think? Like, what will people think about this, these decisions? I, you know, the, the culture I grew up in, um, this, this was the thing. Because the opposite of fame and honor and admiration is shame. Right? And, and the question is, what will people think about this? And if you are driven by that question, right, as you get dressed in the morning or as you, you know, make decisions about your life, you think, like, okay, what will people think about this? There's a, there's a pretty good chance that this is the one. Right? This, this, this fame, this honor, this admiration, or you make posts on social media, and if you get a lot of feedback on it, you're like, wow, I feel really good. And if you don't get much feedback, you're kind of down in the dumps. I mean, this, 
This drives many, many of our lives. And Jesus wants to break this, this addiction to fame and honor and the admiration of others or the shame that comes from not having it. And this is the invitation of Jesus. This is what he says in Matthew 6, 4. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And I love this. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, just stop paying attention to all of those other people and all of those nameless, faceless people that you're just subconsciously trying to impress. And pay attention to the one who really loves you and knows you, your father, because he sees what is done in secret. And so your life, like when it is done, like with God and like um, it's lived in relationship with God, like there is a reward of deep satisfaction that comes from that. Money, pleasure, power, fame. How are we doing? Is this, is this helpful at all to just kind of clarify? What, what, do, what do you want? Which of these things do you, are you tempted to want, to put at the center of your life? Now, here's the key to everything, right? If, if you know, like if you, if maybe you're identifying like, okay, it's, it's money for me, or it's pleasure, or it's power, or it's fame, whatever it is, this is the key to everything. This, this will absolutely unlock everything for us. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33. He says, but seek, but want, but desire first above everything else, the kingdom of God, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What's Jesus saying? It's about priority. If money, pleasure, power, fame, if that's what you are after first, it will destroy everything. You will never get the satisfaction you're looking for. But if you seek, you desire, you want him, his kingdom, life with him, following him, his kingdom, his righteousness, then everything else will fall into place as well. He will teach you how to hold money and to not have it be your master, but to have it be your servant and you get to bless other people. He will teach you how to, to sort of create, uh, to to push against your cravings and to deny those sort of carnal, fleshly cravings so that you can experience satisfaction and deep pleasure in his presence at his right hand, following his way. He will teach you how to hold power and he'll put you in positions of power where you have say-so and authority, but you're using that power to serve and to lift other people up, not to make a name for yourself. And he will teach you how to use the, the, the place and the admiration and the honor you have as a way of, again, just being a blessing to the world around you. It, th what do you want most? And if the answer is, I want to follow Jesus more than I want anything else in my life, it will unlock everything for you. What do you want? And for some of us, we just have to be honest to say, I don't. Like, may maybe that's true this morning. Like, it doesn't do any good to, to fake it, right? The, because the one currency Jesus deals in is honesty, like, Jesus cannot transform the me I'm pretending to be. That's not original to me. That was John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, said that. I, a pastor in New York City said that. That Jesus cannot transform the me I'm pretending to be. So if I'm sitting here, I'm like, you know, Jesus, I want you more than anything else. And I know deep down, you know, it's fame for me. It's the admiration of others. That's my idol. That's what I'm tempted to. He can't transform me. But when I'm honest, I say, Jesus, I get seduced by by fame, by honor, by affirmation. I feel shame when I don't have it. And so Jesus, help me to want you more than anything. I take this idol off the throne of my life and I put you at that center place. Then Jesus can begin to transform. Would you just be honest with him today? Like, what do you want? Would you honestly, like, just like see Jesus looking in your eyes and he's asking you, what do you want? What is it that you want 
And, and, and here's how I want to end. Wow, it's like time stands still when we're in worship. Look at that. It's like quarter till 10 back there. We got like another hour to go. It's a miracle. <laughs> so, what do you want? If you get really clear about this, it is so helpful. Like, I, I would guess every one of us has some changes they want to make in their life. Like something that we know, hey, this is off course and I, and I need to make some changes. And we try a lot of things to make changes. And sometimes we try willpower to make a change. You know, I'm not going to do that thing anymore. I'm not going to do it. And so we, we, willpower, right? I will, I will. Do you ever make resolutions like that? I will, I will, I'll do it. I will do it. I will, I will, I will. I won't. And our willpower gives out. It's like a muscle that fatigues, right? When it's, just, it's the thing we're trying to use to change, and we will until we won't. Or sometimes for us, it's like, I won't. I won't do that thing anymore. I won't. I won't. I, I will. And our won't power wears out. But do you know what will transform us? Is want power. That if you can get really, really clear about what you want, and if you have a vision of what you want, and to say, Jesus, I want life with you. I want to be your follower. I want to be your disciple. I want to experience the eternal pleasures you have for me at your right hand in your presence. And Jesus, I want it more than I want money or pleasure or power or fame. And we get so clear about that. It can help us make these decisions that come along the way so much easier. Name what you want. Drill down into it. Polish it up. Keep it in sight. Like put it, you know, somewhere where you see it to say, I want you, Jesus, more than I want anything else. And it is, I, I can guarantee it because I experienced it in my life. Like I, I speak from personal experience that willpower will not change me. Won't power will not change me. But want power to want the kingdom, to seek it above everything else, man, it transforms us. So Jesus responds, he, he asks a question, he says, what do you want? And the disciples were just like, oh, we don't, we don't know. And Jesus just responds with this gracious invitation, he's like, come and see. Like, come and see. Maybe, maybe today you're just like, okay, Jesus, like, I'm going to see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my trust in you. I'm going to, like, put this idol off the shelf at the center of my life. And Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And I'm just going to come and see what life with you is all about. So, Lord, you... You are the one whose words create new worlds. You are the one who speaks and life happens. And so, Jesus, we hear this question you ask us today. What do you want? And so just, like, give us the courage to be honest with you in that, to, to actually open up and to be honest, to say, you know, if I'm really honest, this is what I want. This is what's driving my life. And then just speak your grace into it. Jesus, you, you just extend to us this gracious invitation to be set free from an idol and the burden and the, just the pain and the destruction that brings and to experience life with you. It's what you want more than anything else. Jesus, what you gave your life for, that we could come and we could experience joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. And so Jesus, we just say, even now in this moment, we say, like we're giving up on willpower, we're giving up on won't power, and Jesus, we ask you to transform our wants, our desires, that we would seek you, want you, desire you and life with you more than we want anything else. Jesus, we want to see and we want to experience it and we want to know you and the life that you offer us. 
We thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name.